things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. In this world, there is nothing more wonderful for the believer than what we dealt with last week, which was the thought of so great salvation. What could we possibly compare that would compare in same likeness to the knowledge of having our sins forgiven? What is more comforting today than to absolutely, with 100% certainty, know that if you died at this very moment because you are a child of God, you have already passed from judgment unto life. That upon your death, you would exit this world, this dark, perilous world, and be immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ. That, in fact, is the great hope of every believer today, no matter how dark the world gets. But the reality is, is that there is still a world to come. This world, we must learn to live understanding that we are living in a doomed world. Uh, We are living in a world that is a sinful world that is being lived according to the lust and the desires and the sin of those in which have made it their world. But the New Testament itself, and I would even say into the Old Testament, does not speak of a world uh, getting brighter. As a matter of fact, it speaks of a world that is getting darker. Uh, As the world grows darker and the world grows more perilous, uh, the believer's role in this life is not to make it better, but it is to give a truthful message. It is to give the reality of Jesus Christ, not only his first coming, but his second coming. The believer lives with Jesus' second coming in view. They live with the world to come in view. Uh, There are a number of different verses or uh, expressions I could have used today to describe what the writer of Hebrews here in this passage is dealing with. But when we think about it from the world which is and the world which is to come, we need to be reminded, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, no Christian should be surprised at the state of the world today. He should actually expect it. So I'm not surprised by what we're seeing. I'm not surprised by the darkness. Uh, There is really nothing that goes on in this world that makes me say, I did not see that coming, uh, even though maybe I didn't see it getting that bad, but I'm not surprised. However, the Scriptures do promise us in 2 Peter 3, verse 13, that there is coming new heavens and a new earth. And here's what's key, wherein dwelleth righteousness. The world to come is going to be a world that is going to be a righteous world. Righteousness rules. Right now, darkness appears to rule. Second Peter goes on to describe that the elements of this earth, this world, will melt with fervent heat, but all things will be made new. The promise of the believer is this. Who's going to occupy these new heavens and the new earth? You and I, if we're believers, will occupy 
these new heavens and this new earth. As Hebrews 1, we saw concluded with the statement of our glorious position in Christ, we see that phrase again at the end of verse 14 of chapter 1, we are in fact heirs of salvation. As we get into chapter 2 and we looked at those first four verses last week, we realize that he has been writing and had been writing, especially in chapter 1, about the superiority of Christ to the angels. When the apostles would reason with society, when they would reason with the world, uh, they would reason from the scriptures. They would, they would take from the Old Testament scriptures and they would reason with mankind the truth of God's word. As they reasoned, they did not reason because they denied their own authority. Remember, the apostles had an authoritative role that God gave them. God said, you will have authority. They didn't reason out of the scriptures because they thought their authority was insufficient, but rather it confirmed what they were saying about the scriptures. What they were doing was doing something very important. They were showing how the Old Testament and the New Testament live in harmony. They confirm one another. They're in perfect harmony. The New Testament is the fulfilling of the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, we would not even see what was happening. We would have no idea of what this, why this even matters. It is this perfect fulfillment. Why do I say all this? Is because we are taught that everything we are to prove, everything we are to stand on, is to stand by the proof of the Word of God. When you're going to reason with a world, if you are trying to reason with something other than the Word of God, you are using a faulty way. You are not going to be able to reason with a dark world out of anything else. That doesn't mean they'll accept it. But that is our authority. If we are ambassadors of Christ, as the Apostle Paul indicates in other scriptures, we prove what we believe by the Word of God, and we prove it by standing on the Word of God. If it's not contained in the scriptures... It is not a part of divine truth. If you're trying to reason with things that are not in the scriptures, that is not part of divine truth. We reason with the truth. Why does truth matter? Well, truth always matters because truth is the very thing the word of God declares. In verse number six, you see this alarming statement. And there's, this is one of those passages I have been wrestling with all week long. And I'm going to confess to you this morning, I am a little bit nervous today. I'm nervous because I'm still trying to completely grasp what's going on in this text. For a number of years, I was convinced I had this settled in my mind as to what the the intent and the direction really was. And yet, there's some things that have raised up in me that have caused me to ask some questions. The problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is not with what God's Word says. The problem is in my reception and understanding of this divine truth. Look what he says in verse 6. He says that, but in one, in a certain place, testified. Now that's going to be the key to getting hold of this text. What is this, who is this one And what is the certain place being testified of? Saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him? 
or the Son of Man that thou visitest him. Now remember, chapter 2 began by warning us about the danger of neglecting so great salvation. That great salvation was first clearly spoken and demonstrated clearly by Christ. This Christ has been given the entirety of all things being subjected under him. It was not given to the angels. It was given to Christ. And yet there is this passage that we're going to have to deal with, speaking in verse 7, that says, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now we're taking this Christ who has been given dominion over all things, and yet what appears and sounds like, although isn't, a contradictory statement that somehow Jesus Christ now comes lower in superiority and lower in preeminence to the angels. And yet that's not the intent of the author and that's not the intent of the text that Jesus Christ somehow lost his superiority or that he somehow lost any of his preeminence. But he was in fact for a time, and we're going to talk about this time factor, He was, for a time, humbled below the angels. And it is by his humiliation, this took place as a divine necessity. In other words, our salvation required this Christ to be humbled below the angels by divine necessity to secure our salvation. So what is, the, what is the, 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 the push and pull with this? Well, we notice that there's been declarations made all throughout chapter 1 and even in the first four verses of chapter 2. And so we are told again there in verse number 5, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection, now here's the key, the world to come. Okay, so the writer is saying here that it is not the angels, but it's Christ who is the head and the king of the new heavens and the new earth that we talked about in the introduction. And because of that, all is committed to his judgment. Now, we read about this in a couple places. We read about it in Philippians 2, which is probably the most familiar passage that declares this truth. The Philippians 2 declares about this reality in verse 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see that he has been clearly given all of the responsibility that all will sit in judgment by him. In the book of John, chapter 5, verse 22, we see another con- confirmation about this great truth. John 5, 22, again, a wonderful passage about all the judgment being given over to the Lord. But in verse 22, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. 
Now, we have established over the last few weeks that angels are not insignificant. As a matter of fact, we've learned that angels are powerful, they are numerous, they are ministering spirits, they are messengers of God. But I want to make something very, very clear. The angels are declared in the scripture as being about the throne. It means they're surrounding the throne, but they're not on the throne. The angels are not in superior position over Jesus Christ. Now, God has taken the time under the inspiration of his word to declare that truth so we cannot ignore it. Verse 5 says, He never said unto the angels about the world to come that the world will be subject unto you, angels. You as the angels are ministering spirits and at no time will you be in the superior position over Christ. Now, that leads to that quandary of statements. Verse 7, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now again, we're going somewhere with this. And if I never get there this morning, I apologize in advance. But we are going somewhere with this. This reality that's being demonstrated here, we have to get the context of the hymns. We have to get the context of who he's talking about. And we've got to get that established before we really dig into exactly what that question is being asked. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? But before we even get there, we need to understand what is this one that's being mentioned in verse 6? And what is this certain place? The reality is, is therein lies the great answer. This place to where this verse comes from is Psalm 8. This is not a new statement being made by the author of Hebrews. He is quoting Psalm 8. So let's turn to the 8th Psalm together and see if we don't see familiar words being used that give us a little bit more insight into this passage. Psalm 8 Some of you might have a heading in your Bible that uh, declares this to be a psalm of David. You might have a heading that talks about the excellent name of God or the excellency of of God, something along those lines. Verse 1, David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now, if you don't see the difficulty yet, maybe you'll see it here real soon. Because now we're, we're seeing that the writer of Hebrews is quoting this particular psalm, but yet in the Hebrews verses, we are seeing this reality about the angels not being in charge. He's proving by this argument that it is in fact Christ who is to be obeyed. We read in passages Philippians 2 and John 5 that the honor of obedience 
was conferred or given or placed upon Jesus Christ to have sovereign authority over the entire world. The angels were completely void of that honor. The angels do not have the honor of being fully sovereign over the entire world. Put it another way, the angels cannot act contrary to God. So that not at any moment are the angels in a superior position and that Jesus Christ has not lost nor ever will lose his sovereign authority. Even on the cross, Jesus Christ did not lose his sovereign authority. Even on the cross, the world was still in subjection to him. Although outward appearances would suggest otherwise. That certainly does not look like a man who has been given dominion and all were subject under him because he's hanging on a cross that's reserved for only the most vile of society. So he speaks again about this world to come. We're going to reference Psalm 8 again, so just hold your place there. But let's keep unpacking this. So the world to come whereof we speak. So the writer in Hebrews is making a reference about that which is to come. There is in the very nature of the words a pointing towards the future. But he's pointing towards the future of a world that is going to be different. A world that is going to be, if I can use the term, renovated. To, to make the thing as clear as we can make it, there's two worlds. There is the world in which we live now that was corrupted, and it was corrupted by the sin in the garden. It was corrupted, it was corrupted in essence, by Adam. So this world has absolutely no possibility of being the very world that is in this righteousness. Because in its current state, it's corrupted and it is decayed. But later, this world will be renewed by Jesus Christ. This world will be renewed. The state of this very first creation, man himself has fallen. But until something new is made by Christ, until there is a renovation, if you will, of this world then there will never be a difference in this world. That renovating of the world must come. Now, when we read Psalm 8, we're reading about this, this picture of the reality of dominion. Sheep, oxen, the beasts of the field. We're reading about something that there was an intention that man, when he was given dominion, all the way back in the garden, Adam was given dominion. So don't miss this. I hope I don't miss this. Adam's dominion was that he was to be in authority over. But by his sin, he forfeited the rights to that. So that when we start looking at the realities of this fallen nature of Adam... It appears from what we're even reading here that the world to come is, is something that, that is going to be much different. But it's going to have its full accomplishment. This world to come. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, but one in a certain place testified saying. Now, the writer doesn't say David's name. 
He doesn't say, but David, in a certain place, the Psalms, testified, saying. But we found it by reading Psalm 8, the exact quote that the writer was using. Remember, I began by saying that the way we reason is we reason with the Scriptures and we use the truth. So we naturally found that the quote comes from Psalm 8. Why did the writer keep the name David out? Here's my great theological answer. I have no idea. Because in my thinking, my logical thinking, it would have made more sense if he just would have said, as you've heard David say, I'm a, very, I'm a simpleton. I would rather you just say, and David said in Psalm 8, but that doesn't mean that God's not clear. And it doesn't mean that it causes us confusion. But for some reason, God chooses to leave it out. Maybe... He did it to prevent us from giving David some sort of undue honor. I don't know that for sure. That's just my mind working, right? I, maybe, maybe David, maybe God didn't want to designate him as a prophet or someone that we could say, now here is the picture of a renowned writer. Which all leads into that question then. In that certain place, he testified in Psalm 8, David says, what is man? Now, we already understand that that's a quotation from Psalms 8. And there is the, real, the reality that Psalm 8 could have set forth man's position in the earth before he fell. Because we did see those illusions and those directions of dominion over the animals. Verse 6 of Psalm 8 says, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hand, thou hast put all things under his feet. Go back and read the Genesis account of this, and you will see that God did in fact give Adam authority over these things. So it's on the basis of that that the Hebrew writer is asking the question, What is man? Based upon... The possibility of what was man before he fell. What was he? But the writer goes on in Psalm 8 and begins to make statements in there that could only apply or could be represented by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So if you read Genesis 1 verses 26 through 28, you would ascribe that Psalm 8 is only about Adam before he fell. But let me show you something. If you take it in Hebrews along with Hebrews 2, verse number 9, now watch what we have happen here. So now, taking that together with that, Hebrews 2, 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. You realize... That when we see Jesus, we see the very reason for his suffering and we see the very reason why he should taste death for every man was because man, when he was put in that perfect environment and given dominion over the animals, fell. So that's peculiar to me. Because you're now beginning to see, when he asked the question in Hebrews, what is man? Yet Psalm 8 can be attributed to man before the fall, but there's also, it is not a violation of scriptures to see how that Christ himself 
was even made in sinful flesh. He became like man. He became sin for us. And through the suffering of the cross, His passion experienced death for every one of His people. So this brings us to this fork in the road. Who is the man? What is man? That thou art mindful of him. Now, for many, many years, my simple answer to that is, is what is man? That's always about us. That's always about how God, good God is to us to, to even visit us. But if I lose sight of the humanity of Christ in this, I'm going to miss the entirety of what's going on here. And this is the part where I have been wrestling with this thing. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss the entire intent of what is man. Because if I can see in Psalm 8, remember, we believe that Christ is in the Old Testament. So to, to some who would, who would object and would say, well, Psalm 8 can't be about Christ because that's the Old Testament, I would submit to you, no, there's just as much reason to see Jesus Christ in Psalm 8 as we see Jesus Christ in Hebrews. So this Psalm 8, which he's quoting here, has to be examined. It seems like we would be violating Scripture to apply it to Christ in any way, shape, or form. Because in Psalm 8, David appears to mention the benefits which God bestowed on mankind. When we read Psalm, David was talking about being astounded and contemplating the power of God as it was manifested in heaven, manifested in the stars. And he comes to man and he shows himself to mankind. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm about. Indeed, we could look at this and say, well, how in the world could this be applied to Christ at all? Remember, man was first put in possession of the world. What was Adam's job? To rule over all the works of God. The world, in essence, was given at that moment for Adam to have dominion over and that the world would be subjected unto Adam. And the minute that he was given that, he fell. And because he falls, he loses his dominion, which was, by the way, a just punishment for his unthankfulness. He refused to acknowledge and faithfully worship God according to God's ways. So what did God do as a result? He took away and deprived Adam, don't miss this, of a right that he previously had. Adam, for that time, had right I'm using that word intentionally. Had a right given to him by God for that dominion, but he forfeited that when he fell. As soon as Adam did that, Adam did in fact alienate himself from God through his own sin. He now be he went from having the right dominion to now having being deprived of those good things. And of course, we know part of the punishment was by the thorns and the thistles and the sweat of his brow and that the, the wife, the woman, would have pain in childbirth. 
He's deprived of the good things. But it's not that he was denied the entire use of them, but he would have no right to them. There's a big difference in rights here. There's a big difference in dominion. There's a big difference in me saying I have a right to something that's granted through somebody else than me saying I have dominion over that. Is that clear in my mind? Am I I stating that right? There's a big difference in having a right to and having dominion. You and I don't have dominion. We have a right. The right to approach a holy God is granted by what Jesus Christ has done. I don't have dominion. I have a right. So, in the very use that God intended for all of creation, there was a loss of some of these things. There was a loss of some of these rights. We see the world today. We see how there are dangers around us. Uh, We see how there are are things where uh, the world just seems to be adverse to us. The world seems to be against us. (laughs) It's not subjected to us. We don't have authority over it. I cannot stand on the seashore on a boat and say to the waves and the wind, peace be still. It doesn't matter how many times I say it. You know why? Because I don't have dominion over it. I don't have dominion. That fell with Adam. All creatures now were intended to be in subjection to. But whatever Adam and even his sons possessed, they can no longer call their own. They don't have dominion over it. So what's happening here is in Hebrews, this foundation is being laid for the reality that whatever God gives us does not belong to us until the right Adam had to it was restored. Hope that's clear. Remember, chapter 1 in Hebrews told us that at the very beginning of this, Christ had been appointed by the Father, the heir of all things. That means that there, are, there is an entire inheritance, but there are people that are excluded from that. Now remember, before our conversion, we are all considered to be exiles from God's kingdom. We are all considered to be aliens. But yet what God has put in place and destined for His own people, we don't have a right to take it for ourselves. But it's through Christ that we are admitted into that family. We are granted access and the very rights that we have to enjoy the world because of what Christ has done. Now we learn about Abraham throughout Scripture, especially in Romans, that it talks about this, that Abraham was by faith made an heir of the world. He was united to the body of Christ. So what does this mean? This means that men are prevented from all of God's blessings until they receive a right to those blessings through Christ. 
Remember I said there's a big difference, right and dominion. I don't, I don't even have a right until Christ restores and gives me that right. Why? Because I lost any rights and any dominion that I had when Adam fell. I lost it all in him. So what does that mean? That means that this world is a fallen world. And the only way it will ever be made right is as Christ restores it. A restored world means that Christ is going to be the head. A restored world means that he will have the superiority. A a restored world means he will have the preeminence. And at this moment, it appears as if he doesn't have those things. But yet he does. We don't believe that Christ is inactive. And we don't believe that God is inactive. There are people who believe that what Jesus Christ is doing right now is just kind of sitting on the sidelines. Pardon the sports analogy. He's just kind of sitting there and he's letting life play out. And people make the mistake about saying, well, this thing can't be happening because God would have no part of that. God couldn't do that. God wouldn't allow that. And we've gone as far as to say when someone's going through a time of suffering, they say, God has no part of that. If you believe in a sovereign God, God has the very right and authority to ordain and allow your suffering. Now, what's our humanity do? Our humanity pushes back and said, that doesn't seem quite fair. It doesn't seem fair to you, but you're talking to someone who doesn't have the right order of dominion to dictate to God what you have a right to. Part of the problem is, is we try to be in the position where Christ is instead of understanding that the only reason we have a right to anything is because Christ has in fact given us the right. So he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that visitest him? To be mindful and to visit really in scripture mean the same thing, except the second gives us a fuller explanation and it demonstrates to us the presence of God. Now we know a lot already, but here comes that difficulty. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. This new difficulty comes and we've already shown how Psalm 8 would fitly apply to Christ. It certainly would apply to man and his fall before he fell. But the writer now seems to turn to the words in which how David understood them. This little lower, this little seems to give us this idea of size instead of something that more relates to time. It seems contextually to refer to time. It means a little while. And it designates that there would be a moment in time when Christ would be humiliated for a time. It does not mean that for a little while he would no longer be superior, he would no longer have dominion, and he would no longer have sovereign authority. It just means for a time that he would be in a position of humility. In that position of of humility, David and even the Hebrew writers here do not give us a full exact explanation of these words. 
But throughout Scripture, there are times when there are illusions given to us to where they're trying to give us a picture of what's happening here. Uh, There's a passage in Romans 10 regarding Moses that said, Who shall ascend into heaven? Uh, the meaning that David is saying that, that Lord, the Lord has, has raised man to such a dignity. He's raised him to such a place that it is, it, 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 it's, it's in its differences very little from divine or angelic honor. Now the writer here is not trying to tell us in verse 7 that he's somehow now overthrowing everything that he has said. But what he's trying to point us to is I want you to consider what Jesus Christ has done. in restoring the rights and the dominion, especially the rights, how he's humbled himself in order to grant you that right. Jesus Christ only appeared for a very short amount of time in his humility. It, it's, it was a flash in time. But yet, that flash in time is the very time in which the glory of God was being crowned. This this is the expressions that are being given here. That Jesus Christ, although in his humility he was made lower than the angels, he never was made lower in his superiority. It says, Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thy hands. David, as he was speaking about all things being subjected to, He wasn't speaking about necessarily an individual man, but he was speaking about the proposition here as even Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there, he shows us the reality of this this dominion, this right, this subjection that mankind is into, uh, that God has. And this is at the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, Then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him that put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. Listen, Christ has universal dominion over all creatures. But then there's this interesting phrase that Hebrews continues to go on and continues to remind us. He left there in verse number 8, Thou hast put all things under, in, in subjection under His feet, for in that He put all in subjection under Him, He left nothing that is not put under Him, but now we see not yet all things put under Him. This tells us that there are some things we do not fully see. All things right now do not as of yet obey the authority of Christ, including this world. This world in its whole has no desire to submit itself to the authority of Christ. Hence, that's why the world is dark. The world is not dark because of sin alone. The world is dark because of its refusal to acknowledge God, who is so clearly demonstrating himself that even the works of his hands and the works of his fingers, even as someone mentioned in Bible study, Romans 1, they knew God and they turned and changed the image of God into something entirely different. It's all about authority. It's all about submission. 
Yet the Bible declares our way of reasoning with the truth declares that Jesus Christ has put all things under his authority. But remember this, we have not seen all things yet. All things refers also to the world to come. What we don't see fully yet. But that doesn't mean that he he does not have, even for a moment, does not have authority. Even though there are things that we do not yet see, there's already an immediate acknowledgement of the glory and the honor of Christ. Look, right now we don't see universal subjection to Christ. But let us today be satisfied with the reality that Jesus Christ has already passed through death. He's already paid the price. He's already accomplished our salvation. Jesus Christ right now is already exalted into the highest state and the highest honor. He's in the preeminent place. And because he's already there, the world is already, they're already in a subjection to him. Even if a man stands up and says, I despise God, he will not be in authority over me. He cannot declare that because Jesus Christ has the dominion. Man is in exactly the position where it's intended to be. In subjection to God. Was Adam given that at the beginning to have dominion? Yes, and you saw what man will do when he's given dominion over it. He'll fall. Although we don't see this full subjection, we do understand that Jesus Christ has already accomplished it. And it says He left nothing that is not put under Him. David included all things generally. He included all various kinds of things that he saw. He saw the beasts of the field. He sees the fishes of the sea. He sees the birds of the air. Uh, David is just giving instances of God's power over things. But we understand that the passage also teaches us that God has made subject to Him all things. Not only the things that are needed for our eternal home and our eternal glory, but He has also given us all things even in this temporal world for His glory. Again, we might ask the question, why does He say that we do not yet see all things? The solution is simple. In the very first chapter of Hebrews, we saw that you'll find something that Paul already quoted. In this very first epistle, we see that he was, he was stating about how God has spoken through His Son and how He's appointed the heir of all things in verse number 2 of chapter 1. Jesus Christ right now is carrying on. He is not inactive. He is carrying on a war with various enemies. But understand this. Jesus Christ is not waging in a war against his enemies because it's necessary. In other words, Jesus Christ has not lowered in his authority, he's not lowered in his, in his dominion, that he's saying, this world is pushing back too hard on me, and i got to keep fighting because the world keeps pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. You see, folks, that's what, that's, and I hope you're seeing this, that's what we're feeling you, you and I are feeling the push of the world. Jesus Christ isn't. We're not taking one step forward and two steps back. Jesus is not waging this war against his enemies because he has to. But the Bible says that there is coming a day at the appointed hour, the appointed time, that all of his enemies will be subdued. On that last day. So what does that mean this dark world for us is to do? 
He is trying and proving us. Paul himself prayed about this present evil world. Everybody wants out of this world because we want out of the struggle. We want out of the trouble. But can I tell you that this is part of the refiner's fire. This is part of what is making you and I and sharpening us. It's not because Jesus Christ at ever any point in time lost any of his authority or that now the world is in subjection to him. It could be announced from the highest rulers in the world, maybe even our government, and they might say, we deny the authority of Jesus Christ. It won't make a bit of difference. Christ has not lost anything. He is not sitting there at the right hand of the Father, passive and active and saying, boy, I can't wait until I can start waging war. He's already doing it. You and I are the ones feeling the push. He's not. Remember reason with Scripture. What's, what's the Bible tell me? He will make every one of his enemies a footstool. Try to visualize that for a moment, making all of your enemies a footstool. We can all recognize a footstool in our house or maybe the case, <clears throat> but all of his enemies? Just the word association there is amazing, but yet we don't see it. Or do we? Look at verse 9 says, but we see Jesus. The believer actually does see it. I don't believe this is some mystical thought. We see Jesus. No, he's not talking about seeing him bodily. We see Jesus' superiority. We see his active activeness. We see his authority. We see his dominion. And we know that every right we have in this world has been granted to us because Jesus Christ has given us the right. But you know what he never did restore? He never restored our dominion. <laughs> he never once said, I'm going to put you back in charge. You know why? Because the same result would happen. I had one of my, I don't know if it was a fifth, fifth or sixth grade student, innocently asked me that would we have had the same result if he had put somebody else in charge? And the kid asked as innocently as they could. And I said, we would have had the same result. Because they were trying to rationalize in their mind, saying, why, why am I held responsible for Adam's? Why, why am I held responsible for what Adam did? I didn't do this. Kid was almost mad. I didn't do this. And I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, thank you for these opportunities to take the time and to try to explain at a fifth grade or sixth grade level. Well, here's why. But we see Jesus, again, look what it says. Here's that word who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. In superiority, no, for a little time. It was exhibited in Christ itself. He became the mediator. David extended all the gifts of God, which man is given by God's blessing. But this shows us and leaves us to the idea that it is only through Jesus Christ we can see this. The psalm showed us that Christ, in becoming man, assumed a nature, get this, assumed a nature inferior to that of the angels, but he did not cease to be an authority. And it was only for a little while. 
Often people say, well, I'm glad that nature of Christ is gone. I believe scripturally that Christ still continues in that nature which he assumed. But now it's in a perfected. It's perfected now. It was always, he, he assumed that position. He became sin for us. He didn't become a sinner. But yet, as we're being refined, being moved towards perfection, we understand that his nature had never changed. Because even in his humanity, he was still perfect. Tempted as we are in all points, yet without sin. But we make a grand mistake if we say Jesus in his nature became imperfect. In any of his natures, we, we commit offense. He was still perfect. I want to finish with a quote that Spurgeon wrote about Psalm 8, and he emphasized Hebrews 2.6. And again, we can see all the admittances of man and what Christ has done. But he said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The least grain of sand is not so small to the whole earth as man is to heaven. When I think of the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, O God, what is man? Man in the pride of his heart sees no wonder in God's being mindful of him, but a humble soul is astonished. Will the Lord have respect to such a vile, vile worm as I? Will the Lord acquaint himself with such a sinful wretch enough to die for me? Will the Lord open his heart to me? What is man that thou art mindful of him or carest for him? Man is but a piece of clay that's animated by thy heavenly breath. And when that breath thou takest away, he is clay again by death. Baser than clay is he, for sin hath made him like the beasts that perish. Though next to angels he was in degree, yet this beast thou dost cherish. Worse than a beast is man, who after thine own image made it first, became the devil's servant by sin. And can a thing become, or can a thing be more accursed? Thou didst thyself abase and put off all the robes of majesty, taking his nature to give him thy grace. Thou hast made him one with thee. He is not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. He's a beast. That pretty much summarizes what we are and what he is. The very fact that he would even be mindful of us and take upon a similar nature to ours to grant us those rights. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, I know that my words are not the words that need to be heard, but it's the words of the Spirit and the Word of God. I pray that you'd give us understanding that only the Spirit of God can do. And Lord, help us to be mindful of these things. Lord, whatever was missed, whatever I didn't state clearly, whatever was just not as clear as it should be, Lord, I know that your, the Spirit can make these things clear. Father, we are thankful that Jesus Christ died for people. He died for his own. And if we are people who can acknowledge that, may it lead us to a heart of thanksgiving. May it lead us to mouths that praise you. Father, thank you for these great truths. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Let's stand and conclude with...